Hello everyone and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, a crushing disappointment, Mark Bigney, and with me as always is my co-host, a disappointment and crushing, Mike Walker. How you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you today? I'm very well. I have an important announcement to make. It's been teased for a long time. I'm suspending my campaign to be the Democratic nominee for President of the United States of America. Oh, that's a shame. It was always a long-shot candidacy, really, what with my being constitutionally ineligible to serve as in the post. But I always thought that come South Carolina, they would turn to the Canadian board gamer. And, you know, my inability to get a single delegate is really, really a shame. Well, wait till you get a bunch of funding first and then pull back. Look, I applaud your decision to stay in the race. I think come a brokered convention, I don't think in the first or second ballot you're going to get much traction. But come the 15th or 16th ballot, I think you're the dark horse. I am. So what we're going to do here, now that we don't have any political careers left to speak of, is we're going to talk about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news, why it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about, we have a topic this week, which we're calling Playing for Second. And it occurs to me that we also have an as-yet-unnamed retrospective interest segment on a Eurus. We do, Mark. Where we talk about what we reviewed roughly last year. What is our Eurus this week, Walker? So last year, we reviewed a game called Stevenson's Rocket by Reiner Knizia and put out by Grail Games at the time. It was a Kickstarter. Now, I have to say that I've only played it once since we reviewed it, but I have asked you many times about it and am eager to play it at any time. Fantastic game. Since reviewing it, I've played both variant maps. There's a US map and a China map, as well as the standard British map. And I think that the maps do a reasonably good job of addressing some of the structural unfortunate elements in Stevenson's Rocket. It's it's an odd Knizia game. It feels very much like a Knizia game in a lot of ways. But there are little rough bits that you might expect more in something like a Martin Wallace design, where there are actions that don't seem as valuable. They don't seem to, to, to function as well. But the Chinese and American maps in both their ways seek to address that. And I've been playing Stevenson's Rocket for a very long time. I've been playing the old Pegasus version. I've, I've had that for roughly about 15 years. And I was a big fan of the new edition. I think that graphically it was mostly okay, but mostly I like the new maps and that it got the game back into print. And I haven't been playing it as much as I would like because Stevenson's Rocket remains a divisive design. Very glad you like it, but it's a lot more confrontational and zero-sum than a lot of Knizia games. And the scoring... Some people find counterintuitive, but Stevenson's Rocket is a brilliant, brilliant game. It's one of my all-time favorite tile-laying games. It's really, really, really good, and it completely ruined Acquire for me. You know, the Sid Saxon classic Acquire about stocks and mergers, a lot of people swear by it even to this day, but I played Stevenson's Rocket first, and so when I played Acquire, I did not understand what all the fuss was about. It seemed to be a clunkier, more arbitrary, less satisfying version of Stevenson's Rocket, and honestly, Stevenson's Rocket is one of the reasons why I'm not as much into Cube Rail games or even 18xx games as I am. Not that it's even remotely approaching something like an 18xx game. It's just, as far as trains go, Stevenson's Rocket covers most of what I want. So, brilliant game. You're absolutely right. We should get it to the table again soon. Speaking of games that are not 18xx games, onto the <laughs> games that we played this week. <laughs> Imperial Spells and Steam, Mark, we played. It is a railroad game by Trey Chambers that's put out by Level 99 Games. Now, in this game, the board is completely seated. There's like six different kinds of tiles, and it's this giant hexagon map. Each hexagon has a token in it corresponding to the tile type. And then when it's your turn, you're moving along your rail cars, which is sort of like an engine builder. You can start making these particular cars better actions right and it's one of these games where you can skip 
certain rail cars and do actions that you want, sort of like a rondelle system. And what you're doing is you're laying out your trains, or i.e. a track. And as 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 you move along, you, there's all sorts of different ways you can skip spaces. And what you're trying to do is when you get to the end of your rondelle, you get to ship goods. And as long as you have a train next to one of the corresponding colored cities, then you can ship goods of that type, and they're all worth victory points. What did you think of the game, Walker? I think it was, it was, I would play it again, but I really think it's a very, I don't want to say front-loaded game, but there's a lot of hidden information, in my opinion. Not, not, not as though the game mechanics have hidden information, but it's the fact that there's these decks that have all sorts of special abilities. And it's not only one deck, it's three different decks that throughout the game you get to choose from that have all these crazy abilities. So if you're not sure what's in there, then you might be at a disadvantage and not, and on top of that, how you improve your, improve your cars is you take these tiles that improve, you know, your rail cars and you have no idea what's in that deck. You have no idea what's coming up. So it's one of these games where definitely you're going to be better at it. The more you play. I, I honestly think you're misidentifying what the, the phenomenon that you're talking about. I think you're misidentifying by calling it hidden information. Or It's, it's or true. I shouldn't say that hidden information because that's a totally different game mechanic. I just meant there's a lot of information that you're not that you don't know unless you've gone through all of these decks and figured out what's in there. So th- on my this was, this was my second play. On my second play, what it really did, it emphasized more that this is a game about understanding and knowing the tempo of how the game is going to proceed. Because there are all these trade-offs you can make to improve the quality of your engine. In a very serious way, this is an engine builder. But you have very, very little margin to mistake the overall tempo of the game. If you spend too much time improving your engine, you're going to fall behind. If you don't spend enough time improving your engine, you're going to fall behind. And you really have to find that sort of middle point now to a certain extent in order to hit that tempo properly. You need to have experience with not just the overall tempo of the game and how things are likely to proceed in Imperial, but you also have to have some notion generally of the universe of special powers that might exist. And so in that sense, being inexperienced, I can completely respect the fact that you felt a little bit more at sea. I really enjoyed this renewed emphasis on tempo, for, well, this increased emphasis on tempo upon my second play. And I really liked the fact that it was just really hammering in on the idea that you're watching everyone else make these progresses in their engines, knowing, okay, do I need to upgrade? How much do I need to upgrade? What do I need to upgrade next, if anything? Because there's all kinds of toys, which is one of the things that you can expect from a level 99 game. And it certainly is, in, is consistent with Trade Chamber's previous offering, Urge in the Consortium. But here I preferred the, the, the acquisition of toys because it was really a question of, you know, giving the opportunity cost of going and getting them. And the different toys are all relatively simple in their application, but the universe of effects is so large that there's any number of things that can happen. So the overall craziness of any given individual effect is relatively minimal. We're not talking about a huge take that effect or I play some ability and now suddenly half the board is gone or something. It's not a wild free-for-all in that sense, but it is very challenging to try to situate your overall pacing in the context of everyone up who's 
ramping up in power very, very quickly. You're ramping up in power too, but it's those trade-offs that I find very interesting. I am eager to play again. I thought it did very well at five. It was It's a very brisk game, especially when someone knows what they're doing. Here, there were two experienced players and three inexperienced players, and I think it's fair to say that the two experienced players set the tempo, because they hit the ground running, and they knew a little bit better to manage the trade-offs, and it's no surprise, I think, that the two experienced players came in first and second, respectively, overall in the scores. And I think that that level of chaos and confusion is really to the game's strength. I mean, again, it felt a lot like Argent the Consortium, that there's this sea of effects, and you're just trying to keep your head above water and navigate things. And I think that a game like Imperial, which is shorter and to the point, is much better suited to that style of play for my preferences than a game like than a game like Argent the Consortium. So I really liked Imperial Spells in Steam. I am I, I would definitely want to play it again. I respect the fact that you found it a little bit overwhelming, but uh, you know, you are a simple man with simple tastes and it's you so likes true. what you likes. I love the timing. I love the fact that because you can put trains in the same spaces as other players and you just have to sort of try to do your, you know, your delivery before they do, so you take that token away from them. I thought that was a great part of the game. And the component quality was amazing, but it was a little bit of a one of these cases where we've talked about where the the game trays or the you know the no 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 box don't, in, that's a trademark term the box insert actually yes this was just a generic insert in some way pulled away from from helping out right because yes the setup is a little extensive where you have to put a token in all of these hexes and the he- and the tokens are all together so only one person can do it whereas if they're in bags you could just like pass them out to everybody and it'd be a much quicker process of something that takes out quite a while. Well, I appreciate your attempt to help me in that sense by completely dropping my copy of the game so that all the components will not be jumbled up in the middle of the box. That will certainly facilitate things going forward. Oh, it was a mistake. The shaking it afterwards and then doing, you know, the... The the, jumping up and down I thought was excessive. The dance, though, everyone enjoyed the dance. It was a beautiful dance. I'll give you that much. I, I agree with you. Overall, we're talking about a very premium product, MSRP. It is not being discounted anywhere that I know of. And you could have made this game for considerably cheaper. I spent some time organizing my new copy of Irish Rails and uh, Northern Pacific, things like that. I'm not suggesting that you could have gone down to that level of minimalism in terms of components, and they're very, very different games. But you can do trains on a map much more economically than they did here. And speaking on trains on the map, I think the the theme is very light. I think it could almost be anything. I think trains, I trains works very well. Don't get me yes, wrong. Yes, yes, but, yes. But there are several other themes that you could quite easily, you know, interject into this game. Well, on that topic is my final note on on Imperial Spells and Steam. I made a comment last week about how it was implausible to me that all of these fighters spontaneously decided to enter the rail industry. And I got messages from more than one hardcore train gamer explaining to me that it is perfectly natural that all human beings, when exposed to a train for the first time, will immediately pursue a career in trains. Who knew? Who knew? Take for that what you will. And that was Imperial Spells and Steam. I played Igitzia Shifting Sands Edition. Igitzia was a worker placement game put out about 10 years ago by uh, a, a collective of Italian designers and a uh, another collective of Italian designers called Architoka, who's done a, a number of very interesting designs. I quite, I quite like some of their work. Igitzia was clever and promising, but it suffered from a number of structural problems, mostly relating to the Sphinx cards. The Sphinx cards are endgame bonus cards. And the quality of the endgame bonus cards varied wildly between them. They were pulled randomly from a deck. And they were too obvious of a strategy to pursue. They've addressed both of these things in the Igitzia Shifting Sands version. Igitzia's core conceit, and I'll call it a gimmick, but in the best possible way, 
is that imagine a road of action spaces, not entirely unlike Kalos, but once you place your worker on a certain element of the path, you cannot place any of your workers on earlier steps of the path. And this is what gives an essential dose of tightness to the worker placement action. It's always a question of pressing your luck because you know that there are these spaces downstream that you desperately want to get to. But there are all these nice spaces upstream that will give you all these lovely things. And so what's striking about Agitzia in both versions is that it's a worker placement game where your salient restriction isn't running out of workers. You don't place your workers every turn. Not entirely unlike Kalos 1303, but for radically different reasons. And so that part I really like. It's also a very focused game. There's arguably one resource, stone, that you use to go and get points. There's other stuff besides that. You know, you have to feed your workers, and there's their throughput concerns for your stone. But ultimately, it's a very focused design. I like Igitzia. It's it's very nice. I don't think it's necessarily the absolute top tier of worker placement games, but it is certainly better than a lot of the also rans who, as we've complained in the past, use worker placement not to any particularly great effect. And it's not overloaded and it's focused. It's a quality Euro game made better in its subsequent edition. Now, graphically, it's a bit of a missed bag. Uh, it's it's a little day glow. The the colors are very bright and vibrant in a somewhat off putting way. And there are some graphic design elements that actually make the game harder to understand, specifically about where the ships go and some of the other iconography choices. So it's not a, a strict improvement over the original Agitzia, but I do think that Agitzia Shifting Sands is well worth trying if you are inclined towards light to middleweight Euro worker placement games. And I'm glad to see that it's back in print. And that is Agitzia Shifting Sands. We got Root to the table again because the Underworld expansion was finally available to us. So we played Root from Leader Games. We also used the Exiles and Partitions deck, which I thought... Partisans. Partisans, sorry. The Exiles and Partisans deck, which I thought worked out fantastic in the way... Anyway, Root and the artwork and the abilities, how they, you know, coincide, coincide with each other and how cute and amazing they are is always a joy. But that being said... Loved Root, loved the new uh, factions that could be played. I had one of my unfortunate, you know, things that sometimes I hate people do in board, the the whiny gamer moment where, where you know, I I something something happened during the game, but I think it's because I was playing the birds, and I always remembered what's the what's the term they use when they go when they can't perform the the proper order turmoil. So when they go in the turmoil, I remember it being much more punishing from before so when it was about to happen i realized that i was about to go into turmoil and it was like oh oh no and so i I had a reaction i don't think it was over the top reaction but for me it was over the top but anyway that being said i had a wonderful time playing root had great components in the game and it never fails to please well it was our number one game two years ago so it was so that was root what do you think of the new stuff mark so i played with the new factions in their print and play versions And I really like the two new factions. I don't necessarily think that they work particularly well together. They're not problematic together. I just don't think that they're necessarily the most solid together. We played with Woodland Alliance, Underground Duchy, the Corvette Conspiracy, and the uh, the Eerie Aristocracy. And so then you ha- basically you had only one group, namely yours, the Birds, that had a conventional military presence, and the rest of them did weird movement stuff, where they would appear out of nowhere. And you did very, very well dealing with that, but I think that those three together in combination was a, a, a little bit strange. But 
Worked out very, very well. I, in a, in a fit of enthusiasm, suggested we play with a new board, with new factions, and with a new deck, and it worked swimmingly. We played with a mountain board, and the mountain board introduces just minor, tiny nods to traditional troops on a map games in the form of, if you rule this clearing at the end of your turn, you get a point. That worked out fine. It was a nice little flashpoint of conflict in the early parts of the game. It has these tunnel bits, which are interesting bits of flavor. But I agree with you that the new deck is is really a winner. I really like the new deck, if for no other reason than discovering all these lovely new little bits of artwork. These adorable little woodland creatures marshalling to war. And playing Root called to mind this whole issue of board games that tell stories, which is Portal's, I think, somewhat obnoxious tagline. Stories like the ones that you can find in board games can be found pretty much anywhere if there's enough fertile enough ground there, you don't need loads of flavor text. You don't need paragraphs of anything, you know, call back to post-human saga. We, every pic, every picture in Root, every card in Root tells a story. There's a lovely little vignette there of adorable slash murderous little characters going about and doing these things. And it's fabulous. Every single card, it seemed like nearly every single card we draw, you do like, everyone needs to see this. And we'd show it around and we'd talk about, oh, that guy's going to get it. And all manner of other, it was, it was really a joy. I love Root. The gameplay remains incredibly solid. The fact that the system works as cleanly as it does with all of this wildness going on is such a testament to the quality of the design. True. I don't want to say that this theme is in the game, but it, it does feel as though that this is a, is, is a world where all these creatures live and that, that there was once peace or that, you know, and now they're struggling against each other in order to survive. And even though there's nothing in the game that sort of, you know, dictates that, it just has that feel as you're playing. We need to spend more time playing Root. There was, it, the, the standard thing happened. The expansion was imminent, so we stopped playing the game. Exactly. <laughs> it's just what we always do. It, it's it, it's the same old problem. There's a couple more maps that we have yet to try, and every new combination of factions is great. I adore the Underground Duchy. They're probably my new favorite faction, beating out the Lizards. That's not to say I don't love me some Lizard cultists, but the Underground Duchy is awesome. Super fragile, but really powerful. And I think you played the birds about as well as I'd ever seen the birds played. So you did a really, really good job of running the table on that one. Anyway, Root was a fabulous experience. I regret all the times that I haven't played Root, which is to say many times not playing Root. And the new expansions are just going from strength to strength. So that was our experience with Root, the underground expansion, and the Rebels and Partisans deck. Exiles. Exactly. See, okay. See, Between got, the two of us. We almost got it. Okay. You have the exiles out of the, the exiles and partisans deck. There we go. So here's some news for you, Walker, and news for all our other listeners. March is the month of my birth. And so I am uh, having a whole bunch of uh, birthday events under the general aegis of swag New Year's resolutions. I resolve to host more and travel less. This is also part of why I insisted that you people come to play Root. I did not travel to you, but whatever. And I sat down and played a couple of games of Pax Renaissance back-to-back. This was two-player, which is arguably the ideal configuration for Pax Renaissance, and I have to say that they were both very, very excellent sessions. The first one had more back-and-forth than I've seen in a while, largely because, unfortunately, most of the players I play with have less experience than I do. And so there was trading off between economic dominance and all the victory conditions swaying back and forth, a real cut and thrust of someone making a push for a victory condition, not being able to make it, and then pivoting to something else. It nearly went the distance. We ran out one of the decks, and we were one of the other decks was getting very, very thin. 
And so it really showed the system to its strengths. A lot of different important events happened. A couple of theocracies got formed, very important political marriages, military campaigns, you name it. The one regret that I have of that session of Pax Renaissance is that I have resolved to stop taking the handsome every time I play Pax Renaissance. And I once again failed to turn up the handsome. He showed up. He looked at me with those dreamy eyes there in the tableau. He said, Mark, I'm only two coins. And I said, you know what? Two coins is too small a price to pay for Radu of Dracul. And so, sure enough, I fell into my old ways. And uh, then there was a jihad in Hungary because, you know, that's that, that's how Radu rolls. That's how, I was going to say, that's how he does Dungeons and Rolls. That, that is, yeah. Anyway, so second game of Pax Renaissance was very, very quick and saw something that I hadn't seen in a while, which was a Catholic religious supremacy victory. Usually religious supremacy victories in Pax Renaissance, most frequently they're Muslim, then second most they're Catholic, and then there is the theoretical possibility of a reformist supremacy victory, but uh, in practice it does not happen. So I was very surprised and, and pleased to see that. It happened mostly because I was careless, but nonetheless it, again, shows that one of the strengths of Pax Renaissance is a system. Anything and everything can happen in a game that is basically just a couple decks of cards. So I had a great time playing Pax Renaissance. Happy birthday to me. We're going to be following this up with other birthday events over the course of the month, including, wait for it, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be playing a huge game of Mega Civ. People from out of town have been invited. Dignitaries have been invited. Certain podcasters were invited, but they turned us down because they're cowards and they refuse to face us in the clash of civilizations. They are posers, punters, and losers. And they do not have the guts the intestinal fortitude to face us in mega civilization. They know who they know who they are. They know who they are. They know who they are. Let let this be said. Shame. If you have, Shame. if you think you're a board game podcaster, if you think you matter <laughs> in the world of board game criticism, come and face us. <laughs> come and face us on my birthday. On a on a not so serious note of of destruction and and plague and calamity. Finally, for me, we, I finally got to get the estates back onto the table by Kloss Zock, and it comes out by Capstone Games. It was another Kickstarter game that came out a couple years ago, and it was a remake from an old German game that I always used to love, and when I got it to the table after getting it, it sort of dulled out. But this time, I've realized it only takes one other person at the table to be enjoying themselves, and it gets right back to where I want it to be. This is a fantastic closed economy game where you hand out the money, there's no way to get new money, someone starts a bid, and and wherever it finishes off, they either pay the person who started the bid, or the person who started the bid pays them, and the money goes back and forth, and it's very cutthroat. I could see why it... it this died for a lot of people at the table because there's a lot of times that I think it's just the way that this particular game played out. There was a lot of just obvious, not not so much obvious choices, but uh, very limited places things could go. Like something would come up for auction and well, it could only go in one place. So, so you know, it died off. Whereas usually the game's a little bit more open than that. So I, I think that it, this, the way this particular game played out was a little bit different, but other than that, I was very happy that I finally got to play the Estates again and enjoyed this playing. Mark, why don't you let, let me know what you thought of the Estates? Oh, well, since you asked. The forced placement isn't really the problem that I have with it. The problem that I have with the Estates is twofold. Number one, it is an auction game where the early auctions are vastly more important than the subsequent auctions, and I do not like it when games are front-loaded with information to that extent. It's a quick game, but it's not quite quick enough to compensate for the fact that the early round of auctions is just supremely uh, consequential. Just a quick note on on the quickness of the game. There is 
a, a paragraph at the end of the game that says, you know, since it's only a 30 to 45 minute game, which I think it could be, our game was, was fairly quick, not that quick. Sure. It says you were pl- to play a few rounds and then, and take your score that way. You know what I mean? Like best of three type thing. Sure. I don't think it's quick enough that I would want to do it that way. And also, my bigger problem with the estates is simply that the ability to start an auction that will just completely kneecap somebody else, and the mere fact that the auction has begun is a tremendous dagger to their heart, is problematic when combined with the paucity of things you can do to advance your own interests. So what I'm saying is, effectively, it is a kingmaker's delight much of the time. And it is not really a game for people who like to be able to say, ah, well, I will do this clever move to advance my position. I routinely, and this is not always the case in the estates, but I routinely, when it is my turn to do something in the estates, feel that all that I have the option to do is just hurt somebody else. I know that this will penalize them. I know this will penalize them. Oh, okay, well, this bit I have to win to protect my investment, but all right. And if I lose it, I get hosed. And so it's ultimately just, uh, it, it ends up feeling a little bit like a take that game where I don't really have any ability to protect myself unless I happen to be sitting on more money than everybody else combined. And sometimes that's okay in really tight economic models, but in the context of this kind of pointed aggression and inability to plan ahead, I don't think it works to the estate's advantage. And we'll be talking more about the estates later. I'm sure we will. Yes, we will. What else did you play this week, Mark? Finally, I played Assault on Doomrock. It occurred to me that I had not yet played the final version of the free print-and-play expansion to Assault on Doomrock involving two new traits, a new class, and a new enemy type. And so I played with, again, following the somewhat ill-advised root model of play with all the new expansion stuff all at once, I played a Beastmaster and, well, a Paladin, but I, I pulled that randomly. With I didn't try any of the new traits, though, and the first enemy that we fought were against the new enemy type, which is an angry mob. And oh my gosh, did they pants me. So Assault on Doomrock is usually very, very hard. Losing in the first fight is not uncommon. Certainly the way I play. Maybe I'm just really bad at it. I have won before, but maybe it's just because I'm really, really bad at it. And I have to say that the new stuff is nice, and I think it's great that they offered it for free, and I think it's unfortunate that Assault on Doomrock doesn't get more attention because it's a brilliant game. But I wasn't a huge fan personally of the way the Beastmaster worked because one of the coolest things about Assault on Doomrock is the abstracted movement system and the way it involves a lot of the quality elements of maneuver without overloading you with the minutia of counting squares and figuring out range and line of sight and all that nonsense. And the Beastmaster, mostly what they do in order to inflict damage is they send out their pets, as you might imagine. And so it's their pets that are doing the moving, not them. And as a result, some of the maneuver didn't feel as pointed or as important as compared to, say, a ranger who needs to be distant from enemies in order to hurt them, or a paladin that needs to be adjacent to enemies to hurt them, or other things like that. This is not to say that the attacks that can affect either distant or close by enemies are less interesting. It's just that I never really felt the need to move the Beastmaster. They just sat there and and, and did things. Uh, So that wasn't necessarily to my taste. That having been said, it was nonetheless an interesting variation on the system. And I think that it is a credit to Tom Stasiak and everyone else at Beautiful Disaster Games that they put this out sometime last year for the fans of Assault on Doomrock, because I believe they have more or less said that Assault and Doomrock is not getting any more uh, official support in the form of a boxed expansion, which is understandable, but a little bit unfortunate. The other elements of Assault and Doomrock, all the stuff that from the, the previous versions, was great. I love Assault and Doomrock, and it is very, very solo-friendly, although I will say that seeing Dewey take to the system and be the best support character I've 
ever seen in possibly any game ever was really, really interesting. And given that I mostly play Assault on Doomrock solo, I definitely have bad habits that I need multi multiplayer context to cure me of. And so I should probably be doing a better effort to get it to the table when there are more people around. But Assault on Doomrock is always a good time. And those are the games we played this week. On to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, it's this Simon Marvel game again. <laughs> How many weeks keeps, in a row, it keeps, Walker? It keeps pushing me away and then pulling me back How in. How many weeks in a row are you going to talk about uh, this just thing? Because it's, 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 it's Into the Spider-Verse, Mark. This is one of my favorite movies. Sure. And they announced the, the Spider-Verse expansion. So now they've pulled me back in again. Okay. And how else are you going to get Spider-Ham unless you kickstart it? Okay. I'm going to ask you a very simple question. If you pledge for this game, will you shut up about it? <laughs> if I pledge for it? Yes. Yes. Oh, I never talk about my Kickstarters until they come in. Okay. I, I now have the strong urge to cut you a check. <laughs> so you can just pledge for this thing and not talk about it anymore. We'll see. Maybe I'll do a, a minimum pledge and then end up... One thing I'm glad they finally did was they do now have an overall arcing pledge where you get everything. Unfortunately, it's like $190 US, but I'm glad when they have the all-in. But I'm just, like I said, still super light, super gateway, and... I, yeah, I just and want... super in your head. Yeah, it's crawled into your skull because and made itself it's, a it's, home it's there. These cheapies, Marius, these cute little figures, and 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 it's and it's superheroes. Where else in popular culture are you going to turn to to get things about superheroes? Yeah, I know, it's I truly know. unfortunate. It's the newest greatest thing. Mark. Come on now. <laughs> All right, Plat Hat Games. Yes, I saw this. Yeah, Plat Hat I said, Games. Oh, I'm sure Mark will talk about this. I'll just let this go. Sure. So. F2Z, and I can say F2Z because it is a Canadian company, acquired Platt in 2015, and then F2Z was gobbled up by Asmodee in 2016. That is the vector by which Platt Hat became under the all-encompassing Asmodee monolith. But no longer. Uh, Dead of Winter has been reacquired by its founder, Colby Dotch, and they are going independent. This is the second publisher after Heidelbar last year, to leave the Asmodee group. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is some sort of part of larger trend. Two swallows do not make a spring. And indeed, the exit is not complete. The properties that uh, Asmodee still keeps include Dead of Winter, Raxon, Mice and Mystic, Stup Fable, Aftermath, Battle, and a whole bunch of properties are still going to be under the Asmodee umbrella. So this isn't even a full repatriation. Uh, some people wondered, will this mean that they're going to finally finish Ashes? Well, not really, because Isaac Vega, Mr. Ashes, left Plathead Games separately. So that's not going to happen. Anyhow, I don't know if this spells, you know, the desire of some people to not be under Asmodee or not, but it at least is a slight reversal to the overwhelming trend because normally when we talk about companies in Asmodee, we talk about them swallowing them, not those companies leaving. My last bit of news is Pictionary Air, Mark. This is a cool little thing. But yeah, it's, it's you look at your your team looks at their phones and you get this light wand and you draw pictures in the air and it comes up on their phone like sort of like an AR type thing. It looks fantastic. How is this different from like a Jackbox game where people just draw on their phones and then everyone sees it on their phones? Because there's going to be someone standing up, swinging their arms in the air, and they can't see what they're drawing because they're just drawing in the air. Okay. Because if you draw on your phone, you can see what you're doing. This is just, you sort of have to guess on what you're doing. It sure. It be great. That being said, I thought that alone was interesting, and I was going to leave it at that, but I said oh, I better read into it. It, in fact, 
won the New York Toy Fair Toy of the Year. Ah. This is out from Mattel, the 2020 Toy of the Year. And it's, it's surprising that they beat out some things. It's like this weird list of games. So it's Disney Villainous, Evil Comes Prepared, the Funkoverse Strategy Game, Mrs. Monopoly, Heist. Ms. Monopoly. Ms. Monopoly, sorry, Ms. Monopoly, Throw Throw Burrito. Ah, yes. Yes, Throw Throw Burrito. And Uno Braille. So it beat out all of these games to become Toy of the Year. That's a Pictionary Air. Are you ready to get hyped, Walker? I'm I'm ready because it's gonna get me more hype than than the Marvel light. I don't even know what the generic. proper word is for your attitude towards that game. I think it's, I know right? it's, it's, it's just so because, weird. You're not even really hyped about it. It's just, it. At this point, it's almost like Stockholm syndrome. Anyway, the only game that matters: Seal Team Flicks. Yes, a game that combines three things we love: strategy. Dexterity, and Stupid Puns. I can say that at least two of those things will live on because there was borderline tragedy and heartbreak as it became clear that WizKids was not going to support the game with the gameplay and map developments that we so hunkered after. But there is hope. There's hope. Mark Thomas announced, well, announced, said on BoardGameGeek that a sci-fi version of the game involving many of the same ideas and many of the same systems called Phantom Division is going to be published by our friends at Elzra, the Canadian board game publisher who puts out Catacombs. That is exciting. No more details as of yet. This is just a single board game geek post that I'm operating off of, but I am, shall we say, the excite. I am the excite. And that is the news from this week and why it really doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is playing for second. Is it legitimate to forego the remote chance at first place to secure your place on the pedestal as number two. Reiner Knizia once said, Mark, <laughs> when playing a game, the goal is to win, but is the... <laughs> Nailed it! Nailed it. Sorry, it's very, it's very odd wording. You gotta get it. Right is, it it doesn't is. make sense. Why do you have this written down as well? No. Okay. Reiner Knizia once said, when playing a game, the goal is to win, but is the <laughs> I know the quote walker I can't but is it but, is but is it is but it is the goal <laughs> when playing a game but is it the goal that no when playing a game the goal is to win but it is the goal that matters not the winning yes there we go we'll I, go I can't believe I, you can't get it off I the screen and I, I just remember it verbatim yeah I know so Reiner Knizzi once said when playing the game the goal is to win Oh, you're just going to stop it there. Okay. No, I'm not going to stop there. No, I can't. <laughs> All right. Let me finish the quote. I believe the quote you're referring to from Dr. Renekensia is, when playing a game, the goal is to win, but it is the goal that matters, not the winning. Exactly. Or the goal that it is important. It is the goal that is important. The, it is the goal it's, that it's, is important, not the winning. Yeah. It's, the, it's the, the overall arching winning goal, not the actual winning itself. Sure. But here's the thing. So we talked about playing to win, right? And that was... That was a, a, a big thing in terms of competition and competitiveness. Correct. What I find interesting here is the second order question here about what constitutes a win. And obviously it varies by game to game. But here's, here's what I'm talking about. This became clear from our contact, from the context of an after game discussion of playing the estates. It's also, there's an important contrast based on what I had done previously in our game of Imperial. And I'll let those serve as, as just contrast. After our game of the estates, what happened was Dr. Hansom was in a position where he could have ended the game, but instead he engaged in a series of deliberate moves that harmed him and prolonged the game. And I could not understand why he was doing this. And I eventually understood why. It is because, 
and I think that this is a fair characterization of his opinion. You were there. Tell me if I'm, I'm wrong. Ending the game would have guaranteed him second place, which is not first. And so he decided to prolong the game on the remote, even infinitesimal chance that he might be in a position to get to first, even though the alternative to him getting first in that circumstance was probably being last. So in other words, it wasn't that he wasn't playing to win. It's just that his notion of winning was first place at all costs, whereas another player might not have that conception. And that I find fascinating. Agreed. So what perspective do you have? If you had been in that position, in in Dr. Handsome's position in the Estates, would you have ended the game? 100%. Okay. Unfortunately, then, we are both largely of the same rubric, which might not lead to necessarily the best contrast, because it really matters how much you rank your preference in terms of the different placements. So Dr. Handsome and other people seem to be of the opinion that second place is the first loser. You either win... Or there's a whole bunch of losers, and maybe one person lost less than somebody else. The loser with the highest score. Exactly, the loser with the highest score. These are also the people who can sometimes be killjoys about the endgame state of Galaxy Trucker, right? Because my favorite way to play Galaxy Trucker is you start at the... It's like, all right, we're here to make money, we're all we're all transporting goods, and at the end of the game, everyone tallies up their score... And somebody has more money, they say, I win. And they're like, well, actually. And then you go to the rule book and you just read those two lines in the rule book. They say, count up your final score. If that number is higher than zero, you win. Your goal is to make money. If you made money, you win. Who cares if someone made more money than you? And some people, uh, there's any number of possible responses to that to that paragraph. There's, ah, that's cute. But we know that there's actually really one winner, which is fine. I can respect that. Then there's, oh, that's great. We All of us won, except for poor whomever. They lost. And then there's the kind of person, and I'm not saying that Dr. Handsome is this kind of person, but then there's the kind of person that says, that's stupid. There's only one winner. That's dumb. No, no, that's wrong. Agreed. So why do you value a second place finish? Well, because I have some points here, like, because you might have made mistakes early in the game. And you know right from the beginning, sort of like in a food chain magnate sort mm-hmm. of setup where you've made early mistakes and you know that there's no way you're going to recover. So you're just automatically playing for second place. Mm. Yeah, you're right. It's It's a disposition that allows you to set goals even when you know the overarching goal of first place is impossible. And I can only imagine how frustrating it would be to be the kind of, if I'm not first, I'm just a loser. True, but this only works in certain circumstances, like in in Euros where it's sort of like a heads down and, and it only affects you because it's all well and good fighting for second place because you know you cannot win, but there could already be someone in second place that does have a chance to push out the first player. Mm-hmm. So if you're taking actions which hurts the second place player in order for you to take just his position, yep. so it falls in what we call the king-making position because now you've you, you've euchred the second player just so you can take that position. Absolutely. Even though they had a chance and you didn't to be coming first. I agree. This is one of the reasons, th- these kinds of dynamics are some of the reasons why I think semi-co-op games so frequently fail to work. So there's the infamous archipelago, where the only way archipelago can work is if two things obtain simultaneously, which are are so difficult to do. One of them is you have to convince people at the table to accept what the rulebook says and say that there are two flavors of win. You can win, and then you can really win. There are winners, and then there's the super winner, or the grand winner, and that is nonsense. 
for a lot of people. I'm fine internalizing that. If the, if the rulebook tells me to think like an ostrich, I'll do the best I can to think like an ostrich. But if, and if it tells me that there are different win states, I'll I'll try to value is the Dead of Winter the same sort of thing? Dead of Winter is the exact same thing. The, pro- the, the problem in both Dead of Winter and Archipelago is if you're in a position where you know you can't win because you each have different victory conditions and different perceptions of the victory conditions, it becomes so easy to tank the game. Because the moment you're in this binary where it's like, well, either you're a winner or a loser, and I'm a loser, so I guess my loss is less bad if everyone else is a loser. Oh, well, you're all coming with me. And it's predicated, as often these semi-co-op games are, on a relatively fragile system. It tends to fall off the rails. That's one of the reasons why, I, I think... I tend to value, or at least appreciate, and I'm not saying my perspective is better, but I, I appreciate the fact that I am able to value a second or third place finish in a multiplayer game. Because if I just viewed the alternative as just being a loss, well, I mean, at the point where you know you're not going to get first, what options do you have left? And that's why I don't play Dead of Winter. <laughs> These are true facts. Or when you play with experienced players, and you know there's pretty well, and you know it's a you know a game where experience matters, and you know there's no way you're going to win... Then you're playing for second place. Absolutely. Just like we were, again, playing Imperial. With the benefit of a little bit more experience now, I can definitely say that Imperial is one of those games where Imperial spells and seem not Imperial for McGirtz. They, I mean, I think they're pronounced the same way. Imper- Imperial? I, I don't know how to pronounce Imperial spells and seem so that it's different from Imperial. Yeah. Enunciate the E a little bit better. Imperial. Anyway. Well, like the games of Matt Gertz, for example, every time I teach Antika, I say, look, this is a relatively simple game, but it's a no-luck Euro, so I've played this dozens of times, you know. I don't tell them I've won before the game starts, but there are ways that you can finesse the rules explanation to give people the little clue to let them know that, obviously, most good games reward experience, but some reward it to a stronger degree. Games like Matt Gertz designs, no-luck Euros, the Splatters, Imperial Spells in Steam, you know. Just prepare for a pantsing. And so, yeah, shoot for shoot for the top of the neophytes. Shoot for the top of the your own weight class. And that's that gives you a goal. So the way you can get around this king-making thing, I have a, a sentence here that uh, playing to win versus playing to get the best possible score. Oh, yes, that's a, that's a separate issue. Yeah, so you could just be sitting back and looking at your particular game state and just not caring who's winning, just saying, I want to get the best possible score that I can get from the state that my board is in now, regardless of if I'm regardless of who I'm hurting or who I'm helping, this is going to improve my score. So this these are the actions we're going to take now. Well, this raises an, an interesting question, and it's a related issue of preference for which I don't think there's a right answer. Would you, Walker, rather come in, say, second place in a five-player game with a score of five, or come in, say, third place in a five-player game with a score of 72? Same game. Depends what the first player score was. <laughs> oh, you care about the delta between different players. That's right. Okay. <laughs> At least I'm not last. Sure. So, okay, well, let, let's, let's, let's say then, let's stick back to the, to, the, to the previous example. You're in second place with a score of five. Winner had a score of seven. That's perfectly fine. In the other, no, I know it's all, all perfectly fine, but would you rather have that situation with a delta of two than in the second situation you're in third place... You score, got a score of 72. The winner, the, 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 there was a two place tie for winner with a score of 73. So there's a delta of one, but you're lower down in the ranking order. No, that's fine as well. Well, it's not a question. Could, which would you rather? No, honestly. I'd, oh, I'd rather have either is fine. For, I, the third place is fine. Like I said, it's, all, a la, it's the last turn of the game. You have the option, you have an action available to you 
that will prefer one oh, game state delta over of one. I'd rather be within one than and be in third place than have three away and be in second. Because there are these fascinating studies of economic preference that I find endlessly interesting. The the classic example is: Would you rather earn forty thousand dollars a year, and all of your neighbors only earn thirty, or would you rather earn fifty thousand dollars a year and all your neighbors earn seventy five? And it differs from place to place. This is this whole notion of relative gains and 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 economic preferences. And generally speaking, uh, again, this is a br- painting with broad strokes. Generally speaking, Europeans would rather earn more, even if they're earning less than their neighbors. Whereas, generally speaking, Americans are on the other end, and Canadians, as in most things, are somewhere between the Europeans and the Americans, because that's just mostly where we where we end up. And this applies in games as well. And there are lots of people who will look at their final score and say, look at all, I got a really high number this time. I don't care that I came in last. I did. I got lots and lots of points. And then there are the people who are like, I will drag you all down with me just so I can increase my rank because they care about the rank more than the, the net number. I think, honestly, I'm probably, I, I would give the opposite answer to you. You would. I would rather be in second place than third, regardless of the numbers involved and regardless of the, the, the difference between me and the other players. Interesting. I don't really know why. I, uh, I'm i not sure I would defend this if I had a chance to reflect, but my initial first blush reaction is that I, I probably prefer rank to sheer number of points. That being said, when you see your tokens along the victory point track, it's always nice to have yours ahead of somebody else's. <laughs> um, so the last thing I have here, because we've covered everything of, that I put on, is uh, either a theme, theme for theme reasons, or if you've tried a specific strategy in a game, like you've stuck to your guns, you play a game a lot, you say, okay, I'm going to try this totally different thing, and you, you know, disregard about, you know, what place you're in, you just, you want to play this right to the end to see what happens. Or if you're trying to break part of the game, like often back in the day, like, okay, I don't think this feels quite right, I don't think this has been developed properly, I'm going to, you know, hit this hard to see if I can break this part of the game and see what place I come in. The most recent time I remember you doing that was in Gugong where you went whole hog for Jade. Yeah, that worked really well. Did it though? No, it it didn't. That was sarcasm. Yeah. And whether you want to parse that as trying to break the game or just exploring the game space, we both do this all the time when we're playing A Feast for Odin. It's like, let's try something new because, again, it's a relatively, as you would say, head-down Euro, multiplayer solitaire, probably among the best of the multiplayer solitaire Euros. And so there's lots of different and fun things to do, so you might as well go explore it rather than care necessarily about whether at the end of the game you have 116 to somebody else's 152 or what have you. Especially with the number... That's another thing, though, about about playing for second and, and valuing ranking. Once the numbers get really high... I tend to cease caring a whole lot. <laughs> like, Especially when they're hidden, like they are in Feast for Odin. Yes. It's like you have this, you know, big score pad, and you really have no idea what the other players have. So that's we've right. ta- we talked about that in, in, in our last conversation, you know, hidden victory points as opposed to, you know, having it out in the open and how hard you play and how mean you are to players when you can see the score and why certain games on purpose hide the scoring mechanism till the very end of the game. Yes. What I One of the things that I find so fascinating about this is because I so frequently find people with, with deeply invested preferences that are so radically contrary to my own. Because I am, and I'm not talking about politics here, I'm talking specifically about general attitudes and specifically about board games. I am deeply, deeply conservative in most areas of my life. And just as an example, in the game of Imperial Spells and Steam that we played, just as the, the counterpoint to what Dr. Hansen did in the Estates, I was sitting in a position where I, I was looking at the game state, I was in a position to end the game, 
Not really anyone else was. And I knew I was not winning. I knew for a fact that I wasn't winning. I could have stopped to calculate everything. Imperial is one of those kinds of games you can... Every, every, all the scoring is, is open. But I didn't want to bother doing that because I had a very strong heuristic. And it turns out I was right. But I did a quick calculation and said, do I think that I'm seriously going to ramp up my point production as compared to the people that I think that are doing better than me? Probably not. Eh, better end it and stop the bleed. And that is my intuition most of the time when I have the chance to end a game. Am I running away with it? Yes. Might as well end it because I'm winning. Am I losing? Well, I might as well end it so I lose less. <laughs> this is Unless I'm about to pull off something very specific and tan- uh, tangible, my conservatism will lead me to end a game every time, which is weird. In philosophy, and I, I swear I won't go too deep into the weeds of political theory here, the fundamental difference between conservatism and liberalism in political philosophy is, are you aiming to avoid the worst case scenario? Are you trying to avoid the sum of malum? If so, you're a conservative, and you might be naturally drawn to vaguely Hobbesian types of pol- type political theories. Not that I am, but I'm more of a Hobbesian than, say, a Rousseauian. If you're a liberal, you're trying to aim towards the summum bonum. You're trying to get towards the, the highest possible good. And then you tend to end up with like Rousseau-type political theories. Anyway, I've always been conservative. I've always been deeply conservative about these things. And so when I find people who justify their play on the basis that they wanted to take a huge gamble, risk their second place standing on the dim outside possibility that they might be able to get to first place, or at least cause some pain to other people along the way, I find it so alien to me that I usually react badly. It was odd, that's for sure. Okay, so you thought it was weird too? Oh, 100%. I was eventually able to understand why he did what he did. It wasn't a misplay. For me, it was a misplay. But I had to wrench myself over to his perspective and see what was going on. I couldn't see. I couldn't see what openings he thought were going to happen, or I I couldn't see the payoff in extending the game longer than it did in order to get them. Well, from his perspective, it was actually a very very simple calculation. Just to sort of sum up everything here, he asked himself the question: Am I in first place? His answer was no. From that, you prolong the game. There was no, you didn't need a broader calculation, right? He, I would have then said, how well am I doing right now? He doesn't need to ask that question. He just needs to ask, am I winning? I'm not winning? Okay, the game must continue because if the game ends now, I don't win. And that is the worst possible result. I don't care whether I'm in second or fifth or or third place. It's bad. I need to continue the game. Uh, Yeah. That, that, and there's nothing wrong with that in my It's opinion. true. No, I agree. Very often, I, I'm usually the first to try to sit someone down and very condescendingly explain to them why they were kingmaking. In this case, even though it could have had serious repercussions for everyone else's standing, I can't accuse him of having done anything irrational. He was just operating on sets of preferences radically different to my own. Well, that's going to do it for this week for So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very much for joining us. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We have a micro badge now. If you don't have a micro badge, let us know. We'll give you the means to get the, the So Very Wrong About Games micro badge. And you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. And if you like the podcast, please tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. 
Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.